evening. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. going to start in verse 19 toward the end of the chapter and read through chapter 7, verse 10. Get my timer going here. Here now the reading of God's Word. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in this law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we need to be taught by your Spirit, and so I ask that tonight the Scriptures would be clearly explained. Lord, please help me to speak clearly, but most importantly, I pray that your Word would sink deep into the hearts of each and every one of us, that we may see the glories of the Lord Jesus uh, and how you have laid all of these things together in the Scriptures for our benefit and for our sanctification. We love you, Lord, and we again ask your blessing upon this time. Amen. John Calvin is often hailed as the great exegete of the Reformation, and there's good reason for that. He produced a tremendous number of commentaries, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and he was a master of biblical exegesis. And one of the things that he's most well remembered for, at least in our circles, is the fact that he brought out with such clarity and depth the fullness of Christ in his three offices, that is, prophet, priest, and king. He wasn't the first to have ever pointed these things out, but no one went into the depth that he did and did the exegetical work that he did to make it plain and obvious. And so, in our confession, in our confessional study that we've been in, we have uh, begun to embark on chapter 8, Christ the Mediator. And while all three of those offices of Christ, you could argue, have an element of mediatorship in them, The idea of Christ as mediator is most clearly and preeminently seen in his office as priest. And so tonight, um, this is just coincidentally 
coherent with the study that we've been doing in the Confession, I've decided to take us through um, the nature of Christ's priesthood. Rather than looking specifically at the actions he undertakes as priest, which are very important, and I'm sure we have explored and will continue to explore in the future, I, I want us to get sort of the foundations of the nature of his priesthood and what he holds and why he holds it. And so tonight we're going to be looking at a figure from the Old Testament who has dwelt for most of the last few millennium in relative obscurity. He was mentioned here in this text, and his name is Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is not exactly a name that most of us grew up with. Um, if you went to vacation Bible school, Awana, something like that, it, Melchizedek was probably not at the top of the study list, nor were the few verses that mentioned him probably included in the curriculum. And so most of us, while we may know a few things about him and have probably read the stories in which he is included, if we've read the Bible, may not have a full grasp on his true significance. And yet, as we just read in our text, in, in chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 20, the, the author says that Jesus has become a priest, but not just any priest, he's become a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that must mean that Melchizedek holds some great significance if the centrality of the work of God in redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ is said to be based upon his being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Then we need to understand who this guy is and why he would be so significant that the author to the Hebrews would make him such a central aspect of what he's doing in his work. And interestingly enough... Um, we often say something like, you know, we as Gentiles or we as Christian believers don't know this much about this, that, or the other thing in the Old Testament. But if you had grown up a Jew, you would have known these things. We often say something like that. But that may not even be the case in this scenario. Because if you had asked the average Jewish teenager back in the days of Jesus, who was Melchizedek and why was he important? No doubt they would have heard the stories in which he was contained in the Old Testament. But chances are they wouldn't have been able to give you much of an explanation either. Because the Jews themselves, as far as we can tell, hadn't put a full picture together of who this figure was and why it was important. There had been speculation in the rabbinical literature leading up to the time of Christ. But he was still an obscure figure even for the Jews. And so what we need to do is go through and see who he is, why he's important, and how you can't understand him unless you understand him in the light of Christ and vice versa. So then, my intention tonight is we are going to go back through the two places in the Old Testament where this figure is mentioned, and I want to develop what they have to say about him, and then we'll come back to Hebrews chapter 7 and see how the author uses Melchizedek to make his points about the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to flip in your Bibles a few times tonight, so make sure you have them with you, or at least someone next to you does. Let's go to Genesis chapter 14, for starters. Genesis chapter 14. Let's make sure we get the context of what's happening here in Genesis chapter 14 because it becomes important. Back in chapter 13, Abraham and Lot had come together into the land of Canaan. God in chapter 12 had told Abraham to leave his homeland and to go into the land which he would show him, the land of Canaan. And so he took his nephew Lot and they have now gone into Canaan. But there comes a point in chapter 13 
where both of them are, the Lord is blessing them, their livestock is increasing, they have an abundance of wealth, and it's getting very difficult for both men to dwell in the same place at the same time. So they come to a mutual decision that we're going to break off and we're going to go our separate ways, lest there be any infighting between our servants, because we're sort of using the same land and the same territory and we're kind of starting to compete for resources. And so Lot moves down toward Sodom, which would be in the southeastern part of what we would call modern-day Israel or, or that general region. And Abraham moves on to dwell in some place called the Oaks of Mamre, which we are told in the last verse of chapter 13 was at Hebron. Hebron was the place that David dwelt for seven years as king during the first seven years of his reign. And so that's the context in which the two are separate. And then, in the, at the beginning of verse 14, I'll read just a couple of verses to get the context and then I'll explain some of it. In the days of Aramaphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Chedileomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah. So what's happening here? We've got these little tribal leaders. Now, when we say king, often we think of, you know, Elizabeth, the, no, that's a queen, uh, King George III. Or so, you know, the, the British monarchs or something like that. They, they've got a vast empire, and they're ruling, and they're reigning, and they control legions of armies and stuff like that. That's, that's not who these people were. I mean, we're talking about little mayors of teeny villages back in the ancient Near East. Now, they were called kings because they ruled, but just make sure you get the picture right. And these armies that they're leading are not trained militant soldiers or anything like that. They're just the people who happen to be living in their territory, the able-bodied men who can pick up something with metal that'll hurt someone and they can swing it. I mean, that's, that's, these are little skirmishes between tribes. But nevertheless, these, these little tribal kings start to go at each other. And we are told that Sodom and Gomorrah, the place where Lot was dwelling, was involved. That, that whole territory was involved in this skirmish. And Lot gets captured by some of these other kings. And they start dragging Lot way up north in the territory of what would later become Israel, the land of Canaan. And they go all the way past Damascus. Now, there's two Damascus, Damascuses, if we can say that, in Israel. There's the one that we're used to in the Gospels. That's not the one we're talking about here. There's another one that's way up north. You're almost approaching modern-day Turkey when you get to this Damascus. That's the one we're talking about. So they drag Lot all the way up there, and Abraham hears about it. And since Lot is his nephew, he wants to go and get, Abraham, sorry, get Lot back uh, because he loves him. And so... Abraham gathers his men, and they, they run up north, and they start fighting the people who have taken Lot. And eventually they are successful in capturing Lot, and, and they start to wind their way back and make the journey home back south to where they were from originally. And then we read these words in verse, starting in verse 17 of chapter 14. I want to read all the way through to the end of this chapter. It's just about seven or eight verses, because this is the first place where we are introduced to this semi-strange figure of Melchizedek, starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abraham, at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, 
lest you should say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing but the, what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Ener, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Now, as commentators have pointed out, this story is very oddly put together. Because when you read verse 17, just by itself, what's happening is Abraham's coming back, and then the king of Sodom goes out to meet him in a certain valley. And if you were to skip verses 18 to 20, the place where Melchizedek appears, if you were just to delete them from the text, the story would flow perfectly. Because what happens in verse 21? Right after we're told in verse 17 that Abraham and Sodom, the king of Sodom meet each other, what do we read in verse 21? And the king of Sodom said to Abraham. And then it goes on. You see, the story would flow perfectly if you didn't have this, this Melchizedek figure in there. But all of a sudden, sandwiched in between the meeting of Abraham with the king of Sodom and the first thing that the king of Sodom says to Abraham is this picture of Melchizedek and what he's doing there. And so you have to ask yourself, what was Moses doing when he wrote this account? Why does he feel the need to shove this story about Melchizedek in the middle of a perfectly coherent story that could stand all by itself? There has to be some sort of significance to this Melchizedek figure. And there is. So let's take a, a sort of a zoom in on verses 18 to 20 where he appears. And let's see if we can pull out some of the key features of this Melchizedek. First of all, let's look at his name, Melchizedek. Now, I don't know Hebrew. I haven't studied it enough yet. But I know enough, at least from the commentaries I've read, to know that the term Mel in Hebrew means king. You'll often find Old Testament kings, not, I'm not talking about the kings of Judah and Israel, but some of those pagan kings, with somewhere in their name, the, the idea of M-E-L put together, Mel, it means king in Hebrew. And Zedek is the term in Hebrew for righteousness, righteousness. The term Zedek, when it is translated into Greek, is translated as dikaiao dikaiosune. Those are the Greek words from which we get righteousness, justification. All of that, that biblical and wonderful language that Paul uses about us being justified and given the righteousness of Christ. He uses the words that in Hebrew are in this guy's name. So what does his name mean? King of righteousness. We've got this weird figure who pops out of nowhere. And you can tell just by translating his name that he's got some kind of significance here. I mean, king of righteousness is not exactly a name that just floats around for everybody. So just based on his name, we know that there is a little bit of importance here. Secondly, notice the place of which he is king. He's king of righteousness, and he's king of Salem. Salem. Now, in Hebrew, they don't have vowels, right? They, they were a con, what's called a consonantal language. That is, they used only consonants, and you had to kind of fill in the vowels yourself. And so... What this would have read originally in Hebrew is not S-A-L-E-M. It would just be S, the, the English letters, S-L-M, if we would transliterate it. And S-L-M in Hebrew gets at the word shalom, which means peace. And so oftentimes you will, you will find different cities or different uh, people that, that are identified by the idea of Salem or shalom. It means peace. So he's king of righteousness, and he is the king of a place called peace. But there's a sort of another question we would ask. Where was this Salem that he's king of? Geographically, where was it located? Do we know? I think we do. Because there's another city that becomes prominent later on 
in the Bible, very prominent, that goes by the name of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, do we know just off the surface of this text that those two are the same? In other words, do we know just off the surface of this text that Melchizedek is actually ruling in what would later become Jerusalem? I think we do. And I'm also going to bring in the Psalms here just to help add some weight to that. Let's try. I, don't, I wish I had a map up here that I could show, but I'll try and do some, some finger geography here with you just for a second. So we've got uh, Abraham who starts this whole excursion down here in Hebron. That's in the south of Judah. He goes all the way north to Damascus to save Lot. In between them would have been a place called Jerusalem, or what would later become Jerusalem. So it would kind of make sense if he's all the way up north and he's trying to get back down to Hebron that he's going to have to pass through the place that we know later became Jerusalem. But there's even more to it than that. We're told that the place that they met was a place called the Valley of Sheba. And we know from other sources that that valley was located just north of what is now Jerusalem. So he's in Damascus. He's coming all the way back down to the south. He meets the king of Sodom in the valley of Sheba, and we know that that was just north of Jerusalem. So this has to be, this Salem has to be nearby to what is modern-day Jerusalem. But moreover, I think, you know, because some people would say, well, but it doesn't say Jerusalem. There were other towns that were called Salem. Do we know for sure? Is there anywhere in the Bible where, where Jerusalem is actually just identified by the term Salem? And there is. This is a a psalm that I was taught when I was in the Presbyterian church. We sang it often. And I kind of made this connection as I was just sitting around thinking, and I, I'm certainly not the first to have made it, but back in, over in Psalm 76, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. In Psalm 76, we read this. God is truly known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. He has built his house in Salem. He has established his dwelling place in Zion. Now, what is Zion? We know that undisputedly. That's Jerusalem. That's the Mount Zion where God built the temple. That's Jerusalem. And yet in this psalm, we are told explicitly that Salem is the place where God has established his house. And then that's further elucidated with his dwelling places in Zion. So right there in Psalm 76, you have the direct connection between Zion and Salem or Jerusalem and Salem. So I think we can say very clearly that Melchizedek is ruling and reigning in the very city where God would build his own temple and would place his name. Okay, so what's going on then with this? I mean, we've got this, this figure who has no seeming connection to Abraham. He's dwelling in the land of Canaan, and yet he is priest of God most high in the midst of the Canaanites. Now, how does that work? Well, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that the Canaanites were descendants of Ham, one of the sons of Noah, and the godly line from which Abraham descended was uh, from Shem, and they dwelt outside of the land of Canaan. But somehow, some way, God had kept, revealed himself, we don't know, had kept for himself some kind of, of faithful contingency in the land of Canaan before the Israelite nation was even formed. Now we know by the time that the Israelites actually go into the land and, and conquer it, that there doesn't seem to be any semblance of this godly remnant left. And that was about six or seven hundred years after this episode right here. So 
At some point between Melchizedek, priest of God Most High, worshiping in the midst of the land of Canaan, and the time that the Israelites conquer the land, this godly remnant seems to have passed away. And that happens frequently in a culture. Uh, all the time you see slides in godliness as the next generation comes on. We don't know all of the backstory, but we do know that somehow God had a presence in the midst of the land of Canaan. So we've got Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, ruling in what would become Jerusalem. And then notice the next thing that it says in verse 18. He brings out bread and wine to bless those who are weary from battle. Now I'm not going to develop this a lot because the New Testament actually doesn't make a direct connection here when it mentions this text. But I, I do think it's safe to say that, that this figure bringing out bread and wine to those weary from battle is indeed a foreshadowing to a similar figure who would hold forth bread and wine to weary men and women. And I think you see the connection there. So what do we get next? He's priest of God Most High. That is, he leads God's worship within the land. And we're going to develop more on that in just a second, so I'll pass on to the next observation. Fifthly, we see that Melchizedek blesses Abraham. He blesses Abraham, and he said to him, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, back in the ancient Near East, it was just uniformly recognized, and you can still find this in many modern cultures, that the superior blesses the inferior. That's the relationship. The superior blesses the inferior. You can think of Genesis chapters 48 and 49. When Jacob blesses his sons, he is the superior. Why? By virtue of the fact that he is older than they are. So you've got, you, know, you all have heard of those Eastern cultures where you have a great reverence for the elderly, right? The elderly are considered superior to the younger. It's the exact opposite of what we have in our culture for the most part. And so anytime you have an elderly person, they are considered superior to those who are younger. They're wiser, they're more mature, they're more experienced in life. And so what we have is, is quite simply amazing in this text. Abraham, the patriarch, the, the quintessential patriarch of the entire Jewish religion, the person whom everybody looked up to as the great icon of all things godliness in Judaism, he is recognized here as inferior to this Melchizedek. Why? Because Melchizedek blesses him, and Abraham accepts that blessing. He recognizes that this Melchizedek is in some way superior to him. And then we see that Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. That's in exact contrast to what happens in the next couple of verses with the king of Sodom. Abraham refuses to give or receive anything from the king of Sodom because he's a wicked man, and he knows that, and he doesn't want to put this man in any position of saying, I have some, some kind of claim on Abraham. Abraham will have nothing to do with the king of Sodom in terms of, of giving or taking, but when it comes to Melchizedek, he immediately drops to his knee and says, you take a tenth of everything that I have gained in this battle. He recognizes that Melchizedek is his superior. So those are just a few basic indications about who Melchizedek is and the fact that he has some plain significance in this text. He's king of righteousness, king of peace, ruling in Jerusalem, blessing with bread and wine. He is designated a priest of God Most High, and he's even superior to the greatest man in all of Judaism. Something is going on here. But we still haven't gotten to even the most significant part of Melchizedek in this text. And the reason for that is because the most significant thing about Melchizedek 
actually can be found in what's not mentioned in the text. We read just a moment ago in the book of Hebrews that this Melchizedek has neither genealogy, nor parents, nor length of days, nor end of life. Now what does that mean? What, what is the author to the Hebrews talking about? How does he read this text and get the idea that this Melchizedek guy has no mommy or daddy or no beginning or end of life? I mean, it's a couple short verses. We didn't get a huge biographical sketch of this guy. How do you make that conclusion just based upon those couple of verses? Well, it's actually not that hard to figure out. Because you see, in Genesis, anybody who is in any way significant is introduced to us by means of some kind of genealogy, aren't they? You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 5, and one, where the scriptures trace what happens to mankind after the fall. So we, we get, at least the heading in my Bible says, Adam's descendants to Noah. And I'll just, I'm not going to read this entire section, it's very long, but I'll just pull out a few, a few references to get your mind around what's going on here. We can start in verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Notice what we get there. We get the length of his life and we get his descendants. Then we come to his descendant. When Enosh lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus, his days were 905 years and then he died. And then we could, I'm going to skip all the way down. We get to Enoch. Enoch lived 65 years. He fathers Methuselah. Enoch walks with God after he fathers Methuselah for 300 years. Thus, all of his days were 365 years. And then God took him. Then when Methuselah lives 187 years, you see what's going on here? We're getting a genealogy for each and every person who is significant. We know who their mommy, or sorry, we know who their daddy was. We know how long they lived. We know who their children were. And we know when they died. We get a full genealogical account of every person who bears any meaningful significance in this book. And that particular genealogy takes us all the way to Noah. And then we get the whole story of Noah and the flood. And then right after that, we get what? Another genealogy where we start with Noah's sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And then we start tracing out who did they father? How many years did they live? And how many years did their descendants live? And who did they father? And such and such and such and on and on and on. It goes, and then it eventually extends out to the nations, and we start tracing these pagan peoples, and we're even getting their genealogies. And so over and over again, we're led to expect in Genesis, if the person is meaningful, we're going to know something about their genealogy, where they come from, how long they lived. And then we come to this story, and we get to Melchizedek. And out of nowhere, seemingly for, for no literary coherent reason whatsoever, in the middle of a story, he gets shoved in there, he does one or two quick things, and then he's moved out. No mention of how long he lived, no mention of who his parents were, no mention of who he fathered, no genealogy whatsoever. You might be tempted to say, well, yeah, but that's probably just because he's not important. But we just saw, he's got some serious importance in the text. Even if you're trying to not interpret this in the light of what comes after in Christ, just based on the text itself, he's clearly important. He's more important than Abraham. And yet, this guy can be thrown in without any mention of his genealogy. How is that possible? How is that possible? Well, the answer is found in the fact that Melchizedek, in terms of this text, is meant to be portrayed as a priest who endures forever. He, he's almost presented atemporally, as if he has no connection to time whatsoever. He existed before, 
He passes through and he still exists. We don't know when he dies. We don't know who his parents were. We know none of that stuff. And that's, keep that in mind. That's going to become very important when we start making these connections to Jesus. As a side note, this kind of thing has led some people to speculate that he wasn't actually a real person, that this was a Christophany, an appearance of Christ before his incarnation. If you want to take that view, I don't, I'm not going to have a problem with that. Um, I don't personally think that's the case, but if you'd like to have a discussion about that after the service, I think that'd be very interesting. But that's certainly within, within the realm of orthodoxy. You can't discuss Melchizedek without at least mentioning that. So there it goes. So that's all we get. He enters the text, disappears, gone, and now we're back to talking about Sodom. And then we hear nothing about him for a thousand years. No mention. Lots of stuff happens. They go in and conquer the land of Canaan. Before that, they were enslaved in Egypt. The judges period happens. The monarchy gets established. The whole thing with Saul. No mention of Melchizedek. No development scripturally about his significance. And then he appears in just one other obscure passage in the Old Testament. So let's turn to Psalm 110. Usually when when people mention Psalm 110 in any kind of sermon, they are quick to point out that it is the psalm that is quoted most often in the New Testament. And that is true. There is an incredible amount of theology that can be plumbed in this psalm. Uh, We will not be trying to give a full exegesis of it. We have specific purposes for coming here. But I'm going to read the whole psalm because every bit of it is going to bear some importance to what we're going to see here. We read, and this is very important, a psalm of David. This is written by David. I'll show you why in a second. Here what we see. Yahweh says to my Lord. Who's talking here? David. Yahweh says to my Lord. And this is King David talking. Keep that in mind. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is a messianic psalm. And we don't even have to speculate about this one. Sometimes you have to speculate, is this a messianic psalm, is it not? And you make arguments one way or the other. There's no speculation needed on this one. Why? Because Jesus himself, when he's speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, says to them, basically he appeals to Psalm 110 and says, David spoke of the Messiah in this psalm and said to him, that he was his Lord. How then is the Messiah the son of David if he's his Lord? What was Jesus talking about? He's appealing to the very first verse in this psalm where it says, Yahweh says to my Lord. Okay, who is David talking about there? Yahweh God says to my David's Lord. Who is David's Lord? He's the king. 
Who's he got above him to call Lord? It, you say Yahweh. Yeah, but he already distinguished Yahweh over here. Yeah. Yahweh says to my Lord. So who is Yahweh talking to if it's not David the king? There's no one higher. There's no one in between them. Unless you, of course, recognize that it's the Messiah that he's talking about. So Yahweh is speaking to the Messiah. And notice what he says to him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And then David starts describing this Messiah. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your, the Messiah's mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. By the way, that's regeneration right there. We offer ourselves freely to Christ in the day of his power. Why? Because we're made willing. And we stand in holy garments clothed in his righteousness. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now skip verse 4 for just a second. What we just got in the first three verses was Yahweh talking to the Messiah, and he's describing him as what? A king. He's describing him as a king. Look at that language. His scepter is going forth. He's ruling. He's got a people who offer themselves freely to his service. He's being described as a king here. Then we skip verse 4, and we come to verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. We're still talking about kingship here. The first three verses are about the kingship of the Messiah. And verses 5 through 7 are still about the kingship of the Messiah. The fact that he judges, he makes war, he executes the wrath of God. And yet smack dab in the middle of this discussion of the kingship of the Messiah comes verse 4. Out of nowhere, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, the Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you have in this, this entire psalm something that... Really, if, if we understand the Old Testament, it should blow our minds. David is speaking about the Messiah and saying that he's king. And then right in the middle of that, he makes a reference to him also being a priest. Now, why would that be of any significance? Because in the Old Covenant law, you could not be priest and king. Was not allowed. And nobody knew this better than David. Why? Because who was David's predecessor? Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, what happens? Saul is commanded by the prophet, do not make a sacrifice until I come down in seven days to greet you. Saul was about to go into battle. I think it was against the Philistines. And he wants to make sure that he's got his sacrifice made to get the Lord's blessing upon this battle. But he has to wait for Samuel to come down and make the sacrifice for him. Why? Because sacrifices are made by priests. Saul was not a priest. Saul was the king. And he was not allowed to do the job of the priest. Except Samuel doesn't come exactly when Saul thought he would. And so he panics. And what does he do? He offers a sacrifice anyway. He does the job of the priest. And then immediately after that, Samuel comes to him and says, Because you have done this wicked thing, God is stripping your kingship from you. Saul lost his kingship because he tried to intermix the offices of king and priest. You couldn't do it. Now after the time of David, later on, during the time of the kings, there's, there, this wouldn't have been on David's mind because it was happening in the future. But just as another example of how this does not work, King Uzziah also attempted to intermix these offices many hundreds of years later. He wanted to have the glories of priesthood and to be in God's temple. He wasn't allowed to. And so he actually enters in to the temple and attempts to make sacrifice. And the priests have to come in and say, no, you cannot do this wicked thing. And he refuses, he will not get out, he will not listen to the priests, and God strikes him down with leprosy. And he remained a leper to the day of his death. You could not mix them. And King David knows this. And yet, 
When he conceives of the Messiah in Psalm 110, he conceives of him as not only being a king, but also being a priest, the very thing that wasn't allowed under the law. So where does he get this idea from? Where does he get this idea that the Messiah is actually going to do what the law says that you cannot do? Well, what was one of the commands that the kings of Israel were to do that was in distinction from other people? They had to have a book of the law, and they had to read it all the time. And so David reads the law. He reads God's word frequently. He's reading the Pentateuch. And you can't help but almost imagine that he comes to the text that we just went through in Genesis chapter 14... And he sees, before the law was ever given, before there was a Moses, before any of that, there's this priest king. What's, uh, there can't be anything inherently wrong with being a priest king because God had had one in Melchizedek. And so for some reason, he probably doesn't fully understand, but now under the time of Moses and the law... God has told us that those things are to be separate, but that was not so before. And so maybe there's going to come another time where we're going to get a king who's also a priest. So he writes the psalm, and he says, not just that you will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Where does, where does David get this idea of forever from? From what we just saw. He did his exegesis. And he saw this Melchizedek was, was that eternal priest, seemingly, who had no father or mother or beginning of days or end of life. That's what it means to be a Melchizedekian priest. And so if the Messiah is going to come and be a priest king like Melchizedek, he's also going to have to be one forever forever. And that shouldn't have been that big of a shock to David because not only did he know he was priest, obviously he knew he was going to be king and there was another context in which David was told about the coming Messiah as king in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there he's promised that one will come from his line who will sit on his throne, that is be king, and that his throne will be established forever. Forever. So David already had these categories in his mind. He knows that there's a coming Messiah who's going to be king and going to be ruling forever. So once he recognizes that this man's also going to be priest, well, it only makes sense that he must also be priest forever. This is actually confirmed for us in Zechariah chapter 6. This is after the time of David. David pins these words... And then a few hundred years later, the prophet Zechariah comes along, and he makes a very interesting pronouncement. He says, Say to the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and if you know your prophets, you know that's the Messiah, he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build a temple for the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and he shall be a priest on his throne. See, the prophet Zechariah had read the words of David 
He had read the 110th Psalm, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hundreds of years later, he proclaims, hey, that 110th Psalm is still in effect. We've got a priest king on the way. We don't have one now. We've got kings who die, and we've got priests who die, but we're going to get one one day who's going to be a priest king. And so that's it. Those are the two brief places in the Old Testament where this Melchizedek figure is mentioned. Hebrews chapter 14, Psalm 110. In both places, he comes in seemingly out of nowhere. Doesn't seem to fit the context to bring him in, but he's brought in. And in both places, he is appealed to as the the archetypal priest of God who shall rule and reign forever. Those words of Psalm 110 were written in the year 1000, approximately, give or take a little bit. And then once again, we have another 1,000-year period where we never hear anything about this guy. Until all of a sudden, this Christian writer decides to take up the pen and pen a letter to his fellow Hebrew Christians who are struggling under persecution. So let's turn back to Hebrews for a second and see where the author goes. Now that we know a thing or two about Melchizedek, see where he takes this concept. I want us to get in our mind uh, before we, this will be the sort of the last little section. Before we go forward, I want us to make sure we've got in our mind the context of the book of Hebrews because it, it's going to help us to understand the significance of what the author is doing here. You see, back when this was written, we don't know exactly when, probably the 60s AD. Okay, it's about three decades or so after Christ is dead. The Christian movement has been flourishing for the most part, but it's not been without its share of great resistance. And one of the greatest persecutors of the Christians were obviously the Jews, who hated the fact that they were claiming to have the Jewish Messiah, but all of the, most of the Jews were rejecting that claim. And so the Jews would put great pressure on the Christians. Leave this sect, this false sect of Judaism that has developed, and come back to us. Come back to the temple Come back to the priesthood. These things were set up by God. You know that, don't you? You're telling us they're abolished. You are crazy simpletons who have been duped by this Apostle Paul or these apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back to the temple. And the author of the Hebrews takes up the pen and says, No, no, there's nothing for you to go back to. The entire letter is meant as a defense of the fact that what has come in Christ is far greater than anything you could hope to go back to in Judaism. And so, we come now, again, to chapters 6 and 7. And much has come before this, and and we talked in Hebrews chapter 4, the last time I was up here doing a full series about the Sabbath, and there are all sorts of wonderful things before this in the book of Hebrews. But what we're going to focus in on here is the nature of priesthood. Because, you see, the Jews were attached to the Levitical priests as God's ultimate plan of redemption. I mean, think about this for just a second. The, the Levitical priests, if you're living in these days, had been in effect for 1,500 years. Like We can't even hardly fathom 1,500 years. What was happening in the year 500, 1,500 years ago? Most of us have no concept. I don't know. What was happening in the year 500? That's forever ago. So if something's been around for 1,500 years and your entire life has been revolving around the institutions from this, this religion that's been in effect for forever, for you, 
This has been cemented in your mind as the final word and revelation of God. This is God's ultimate plan. It's been around for as long as we can remember. And so he's got to break through that thick, thick cloud that has enshrouded their minds from the time that they were young. That the Levitical priesthood was always God's final plan. And what the author of the Hebrews wants to say here is no... There was always a priesthood superior to the Levitical priesthood. There was always one. How do we know that? Because long before the Levitical priesthood ever came along, there was a Melchizedek priest. And that Melchizedek priest was superior to Abraham. And who came from Abraham? The Levitical priests under Levi. So let's look here at verse, we're going to start in verse 4 of chapter 7. And let's kind of develop the argument of the author to the Hebrews here. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of everything. Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, that's Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, this is a key verse here, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor, of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So what's he saying there? He's saying that there are two senses in which the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to that of Levi. The first is chronologically. Before there was ever a Levi, there was a Melchizedek. And Abraham pays tithes to his superior Melchizedek. And yet, in the loins of Abraham, when that action is taking place, is his great-grandson Levi, from whom the Levitical priesthood would come. And so you can follow his argument there. It's an argument of sort of genealogy. If Abraham was superior, it was uh, sorry. If Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, and the older is always superior to the younger, that means Abraham was superior to Levi. So if Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, Abraham is superior to Levi. Levi is then inferior to Melchizedek. You see the argument there. That's the argument being made that just by chronology, Levi is inferior. The Levitical priesthood is to be subjugated to the greater Melchizedekian priesthood. But then it goes even beyond that. And we come down now, I'm going to skip a few verses just for the sake of time, to verse 20 of chapter 7. And this was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what do we have here? It's very simple. The whole point of the Melchizedekian priesthood in the Genesis account that we looked at was that this priesthood is one that endures forever. Forever. 
If you compare that with the Levitical priesthood, the contrast is very obvious. In the Levitical priesthood, you had men who were born with a sinful nature, and hence, not only when, when, when they went in to offer a sacrifice, not only were they offering a sacrifice for the people themselves, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could even do their job of offering sacrifices for everyone else. So they're inherently sinful, having to atone for themselves before they can atone for others. And not only that, because they're sinful, they die, and they're no more. And then you have to get another priest. And then he lives, and he makes intercession for the people. And then guess what happens to him? He dies. And then you get another one. And on it goes, and on it goes, and on it goes, year after year after decade after decade, century after century. All of these men who are supposedly, in the minds of some of the Jews, securing God's favor and eternal salvation, can't even save themselves. They keep dying. What does that mean? We need something better. We need something else. This is not going to be good enough. These men can't save themselves. How are they going to avail for me? And if that's all you've got as a Jew, the implicit assumption of the, the assertion of the author here is you've got no hope. You've got nothing. But you see, you've got to turn your gaze away from these Levitical priests. Oh, they served a function. But their function was never an end in and of themselves. It was to point you to the coming one that David spoke of. That Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. You got to look not to the Levitical priesthood, but to the priesthood established on the order of Melchizedek. Because in that priesthood, you have one who has not been touched with the iniquities of his own sin. He's not subject to finitude. He's not under, inherently, the curse of God's law. He continues forever and ever. And it's because he continues forever that he can stand continually making intercession for you. And so, if you go back to the old ways, if you go back to that priesthood and those men who are going to die probably before you do, because they're usually a little older. You're going to be reminded over and over again, my sin's not dealt with. The blood of these bulls and goats, the intercession of these men, it's not enough. I have to keep coming back over and over again. But over here, there is one who is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw nigh unto God through him. Every single one. Why? Because he ever lives, ever lives continually to make intercession for them. Why is the Melchizedek priesthood superior? Because it's the perfect priesthood. Because the one, the only one who holds it, not many men down through the centuries, but the one who holds it was God himself made flesh. He holds his priesthood because it was given to him by God himself. And that's why he has a better covenant enacted, founded, grounded on better promises. So then, Christian, you can have confidence this day that your sins are completely atoned for. And not only that they've been atoned for, but that the blood of that atonement has been presented before the Father 
and that he's accepted it. And the only reason that you can have that confidence is because you have a high priest, not after the order of Levi, but because your priest lives forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's why this shadowy figure matters.